0: Hey guys, I'm Siyun An, the head editor of Multimedia. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Eagle Eye. Today is very exciting, not just because of this week's great guest, but also because Owen, our editor-in-chief, is hosting with me today.
1: Hi everyone, I'm Owen, I'm the Heights editor-in-chief, um, and I'd also like to welcome our guest of the week, Professor Sean McGraw. Professor, why don't you introduce yourself?
2: Great, thanks. Thanks, Siyun and, and uh, Owen. It's fun to be able to share some time with you. And I have the privilege of having you both in class. So this is awesome. So uh, again, my name is Sean McGraw. I'm in the political science department. And um, I've been teaching here the last few years uh, as an adjunct. And I teach, currently I teach uh, intro to comparative politics class, which I have Sioun in. And then I have an Irish politics class, which I'm, I'm fortunate to have you in, on
1: as well.
0: Yes, thank you again for being here. Like Professor McGraw just said, I'm currently in his comparative politics course, while Owen is in his Irish politics course. Can you first maybe talk about how you came to teach at BC?
2: Yeah, so um, it's funny. I uh, it's, it comes out in class, but I'm a, I'm a I, have to, I hate to admit to this audience, but I'm a longtime Notre Dame guy. Um, I went to Notre Dame as an undergrad and. Um, I did my PhD at Harvard, so I'm used to the Boston area. My brother, I have a brother who went to Boston College and um, liked to kind of remind me of that. Uh, thankfully, he didn't really like sports that much at the time. And so when BC had their regular upsets of Notre Dame and most sports, uh, uh, maybe that you guys probably don't consider them upsets, just natural wins, he would remind me of that. I think he only wore his uh, BC class ring when he visited me at Notre Dame. So. Um, but anyway, I, I'm uh, recently moved to Boston about four years ago, and um, I had a visiting position at Harvard for a year, doing my own research, and then was fortunate enough to be able to pick up some classes teaching at, at Boston College and now teach. I've taught the last several semesters, and I'll be teaching every fall for the next
1: few years at least, and uh, it's great to, great to be part of the community. I know, Professor, that a lot of BC students also applied to Notre Dame and maybe traveled there for a football game, but have never actually been. What do you see as the differences, both being religious institutions, between BC and Notre Dame? Well,
2: I mean, the biggest difference is probably that Boston is in the middle of a thriving city and neighborhood, and Notre Dame is in the middle of cornfields of Northern Indiana. (laughs) So um, I think that's probably the biggest difference. Um, I think I I love the fact, uh, my sense is that they're both, you know, have a strong school spirit. I know when I ask BC students like why they chose BC, usually many people have kind of a family tradition. Many people love the football, the hockey, and the sports culture. Many people like the fact that it's a campus, but yet it's in the city. Um, there's so many parts about people's spirit at BC, which reminds me a lot of kind of. I think once you're into the BC community, you're into the BC community, right? In the same way that I think once people enter into the Notre Dame community, they're they're all in and uh, they love it, and they um they kind of thrive on the sense of community and the sense of pride in place and so those are some similarities that I see um I also like the fact uh, you know again I've spent uh, my graduate work and some time at Harvard and I spent a lot of time in Ireland but I uh, so I have more experience teaching in faith-based contexts. but it's a real privilege to be in a place where faith is um openly talked about and lived among people not that you have to be a person of faith um but that, that that's welcomed and included and, and I love the fact that BC, like my experience at Notre Dame is people are faith-filled and have many faiths, but also that there's a strong emphasis on service and being people, men, and women for others. Um, And there's a commitment to both being kind of the best that you can be, but also kind of what are you going to do for your community and your world? And I think that's the part about BC I love and the part about uh, Notre Dame I loved as well.
0: Yeah, that's really nice to hear. So going back to being at BC, you start every class with some sort of like meaningful prayer usually related to what we're going to talk about in class. Um, when did you start doing this and why is it important to you? Well
2: I was, um, so part of my past was um, I was actually a Catholic priest for um, 17 years and um, so I was kind of formed in a life of prayer and formed in a life of integrating kind of faith into everything that you do and I think sometimes we forget that a life of the priest is like oh like well that's their job they're supposed to be about God but one of the things I learned is that in coming across not only religious life but working with a lot of lay people in different organizations that faith and our prayer can be part of everything we do and it's the more we take time even if it's for 5-10 seconds for a minute, um, it reminds us that there's something beyond ourselves. And I, can, I think it keeps us grounded. And I know that I, I need all the help I can get. So usually when I pray, it's also that I, you know, I hope to be a good teacher for my students. So I don't, you know, put them to sleep and bore them, up, bore them to death and, and hopefully fire them up to kind of cultivate their gifts. So I, I've always kind of thought that prayer is um an important part of everything and so to be able to bring it into the class um is is a, a is a privilege I think and and hopefully more and more students will want to volunteer I know I think I told a story one of my classes that I once had a Muslim student um at Notre Dame and she's like you know well can I leave class with prayer I mean other people are leading class and you're leading class and I'm like absolutely so she she prayed a Muslim prayer and she read it in Arabic and in and English but she didn't really know how to end it and so at the end she's just kind of like Amen. And, and uh, she got a good kind of laugh out of the out of the class. But um, again, I guess my belief is, um, obviously, I'm a lay person now, but I think that God is everywhere. And I think that if we are open to that, we see it in each other, we see it in the things we're studying, we think we see in the problems that we're trying to wrestle with. Um, And uh, so it's always been kind of a part of what I do.
0: Yeah, I don't know about your class, Owen, but actually one of our classmates in our comparative politics class did start a prayer for us, and it was actually really cool. But kind of, you touched upon this in your previous answer, but maybe how did your past as a priest kind of influence why you chose BC or maybe even Notre Dame?
2: Yeah, I think, um, well, when I was a priest, I was part of a religious community that was very involved with leading um, the University of Notre Dame, and so it was kind of a natural there, obviously, here with the Jesuit community um great kind of role models and faith and and people who inspire us to I mean again the whole Jesuit experience is not only becoming a person for others but really rooting your life in kind of discerning where the spirit and where God's presence in your life and so to kind of be able to be at a place like BC has been uh is great in terms of teaching I think it's funny I think I think that if you look at the life of the gospel, you look at the life of Jesus, he was a teacher always, you know, and he was a teacher because he taught with authority. So whatever he said, he did. Um, He also, one of the first things that Jesus did is he got to know the people that he was serving and he got to know what their lives were like. And so one of the things I try to do in my classes, um, as you know, is get to know my students. And so I like to have pizza nights at the beginning of the semester because of One, who doesn't like, well, some people can't eat pizza, sorry about that, Um, but who doesn't like to eat and to be able to break bread and break food together is, I think, is very sacramental, and so I think to be able to do that is uh, where real learning occurs, because if I know you as my students, then I'm more curious and eager to know what you know, and I hope the same is true, then as you get to know me as a person, then I think it's a different kind of exchange that happens in the classroom, as opposed to just like we each come in and go out and then it's it. Um, and so that's one of the things that at least I think I is probably a carryover from my life of a priest, but that's obviously not exclusive to priests. We're all invited and called into that kind of way of being, I think.
1: Sure. I know that you've studied in multiple different places in in London, obviously at Notre Dame. You've um, studied and done research in Ireland. You've worked at Notre Dame in BC. You've moved around a lot. You've also been a professor and a priest, so a lot of kind of big decisions in terms of where you've lived and how you've worked where did you kind of find the courage or did you find that you needed courage to make what to, maybe some of your you students- You froze on me going like, there, sorry. No, no worries. Can you hear me now? Can you
2: sorry,
1: hear me now? I, I, I can hear you now, right? Okay. Hey, I don't, it might be my connection. Sorry, I apologize. No, no worries. You are starting to
2: get into like big decisions and then
1: I- Yeah, yeah. Lawsuit. So I'll, I'll repeat the question so see so can edit it in. but. I was saying that your students know that you have kind of worked and studied in Ireland, London, Notre Dame, and and Boston, that you've been a priest and are now a layperson or professor and that you've had a lot of big decisions in your life. And I was curious if you could speak to where you found the courage to make these decisions, or even if you found that you needed courage, or if they just kind of seemed like natural progressions um, throughout your career and, and life. Yeah, wow, that's an awesome question. Um... You know, it's funny,
2: I had, I think many of you know, or maybe you had Father Michael Himes, who teaches um, at Boston College, he actually taught at Notre Dame and I had my senior year. And many of you have the experience where you can't get into a class and you're like scrambling to get into a class and professors are like, no, no, there's no room. I I had my senior year and I remember I I went to one class and I was trying to get into and the guy, the professor was like, there's no room. And I was literally in his classroom and there's like 20 empty seats. I'm like, what are you talking about? So I went to Michael Himes's um, class and there were literally, it was a full lecture hall, tiered lecture hall. And there were probably, I don't know, 150 people in the class and people were literally sitting in the aisles and almost like from the rafters, you know? And I remember right. I went and listened. and I was thinking, wow, this guy is good. And uh, anyway, I asked if I could be in the class and he said, absolutely, no problem. And I'm like, <laughs> anyway, so the reason why I said that is because Michael Himes, many of you know, has this beautiful image about how we think about vocation? And he often says that it's important to kind of find out what is it that you're good at, like what are your what are your gifts, um, what is it that other people say you're good at, um, what is like what are their concrete needs that are in the world um, that are that people need to respond to, and ultimately what kind of brings those all together, what gives you peace. And I remember him talking about that when I was 22, and at the time I was like, yeah, sounds great, whatever. Um, but I think that over my course of my life, I've been able to kind of piece those things together. And oftentimes not necessarily consciously knowing that I was doing that, but I think it was there because I picked it up from him and watching other people I admired, but also the fact that I think I have had pretty good mentors and teachers. And I think I've modeled, try to model myself after aspects of what those people were doing. And I think that after a while you just start not caring. (laughs) I think we we spend so much time like worrying about what mistakes we're going to make or what are people going to think. And I think that that kind of can be paralyzing for many of us. Um, And I think I got to the point and especially because of my faith. But also, I think if you live a life of generosity, I think things just open up, you know, and things kind of come in your way. And in my case, I think a number of times teachers or or friends invited me to do things that I hadn't otherwise thought of. And I think if you have an open spirit, sometimes doors open and you walk into them and you never know what's going to happen. So um, I've been blessed to kind of, I think, have a kind of a combination of things happen. Um, And at the end of the day, I think more recently, my decisions have been, you know, I think God puts people in our lives to kind of teach us how to be better versions of ourselves by being open, by being loving, by being generous, forgiving, um, humble, open, whatever, and I think that that uh, I've just been blessed to be awakened to that and the people around me, and that I, I want to continue to surround myself with people who are like that because it makes me better, and and um, and it's worked out pretty well for me.
0: You've definitely had a lot of experiences in the past, so it's really nice how it's all come together. So you obtained your master's at Harvard, like you touched upon before, where political scientist Robert Putnam was slash is still your mentor. Mr. Putnam I've come to understand in several of my classes is greatly respected for his theories, especially for his work in bowling alone. He was also referred to in my American politics class as well, which is another phenomenal class here at BC. I'm curious about your experience as his mentee, like maybe could you talk about what that was like and how he even became your mentor?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I was, uh, Bob Putnam, Robert Putnam is uh, a legend. And um, I was just fortunate enough, my first year in grad school, my PhD program, his class on social capital, which is largely rooted in his work from Boeing Alone*, um, and I loved it. And I, I was like, why don't we have more classes like this or more professors like you? And so I actually did an independent research project my second semester in grad school with him. And then he was, he could tell I was hungry, and and eager. And so he's like, hey, I have a couple of research projects going on. Are you, are you interested? And one of them happened to be on this book, American Grace, which he and, and David Campbell, who teaches at Notre Dame and was one of his students as when he was at Harvard as an, a, a PhD student, wrote this really interesting book on why is it that in 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 in, the, in public life in the United States that people who are more religious do lots of other things. They tend to, you know, volunteer more, give more money, uh, have people over, engage in their community, not just religiously, but secular in secular ways as well. And so anyway, because I, at the time, was a priest and Catholic and active. He was like, wow, that's great. So anyway, I got to be part of this research group, which was, so Bob Putnam grew up Methodist and converted to Juda- Judaism. Dave Campbell is Mormon, um, and then their primary person who was working with them it was Quaker, and then all of a sudden, he had a research group of about 10 people, all from different faith backgrounds and some of no faith background, and because he's a social capital guy and believer that there's a value in the network of relationships, not just bonding like people who are like you, but bridging people who are different from you, he, he does that in his team. so he literally had a research team of team, and we uh, we met probably every couple of weeks and spent a lot of time kind of doing, you know, for example, as a grad student, you'd go, okay, I want to learn everything about this topic. And so you would go and spend a couple of months researching everything in a particular area, you'd write a 50, 60 page paper share it with a group, they'd beat it up, you'd learn from them, you revise it, but then you'd also kind of be part of all kinds of other conversations, so I think the thing that I loved about Putnam was that he talks about social capital, he talks about building relationships, the value relationships, but he embodies that as a teacher, as a researcher, Um, his work is both deeply analytical, but also um, he's really creative, like he finds really, you know, you know if once you get into kind of social science, you like saying you're interviewing people, one of the things that one other professor once told me is remember when you go and interview people, everyone's gonna lie. So I feel bad here I'm you're interviewing me. You're like, I'm hoping you're not lying. But when you ask people about their personal lives in terms of ne- normal surveys, so one of the things Putnam was really good at was coming up with creative, indirect ways to get a better sense of your real behavior. Because we always want to sound better than we are, right? That's kind of a natural thing. Like, what, like, social media has helped us to do that like on steroids, right? Um, and so, but his, if you ask indirect questions, you can in some ways add up the compilation of all those answers and come up with a kind of a fuller picture of people's real behavior and then learn from that. Uh, so anyway, I can go on and on about Putnam and his work, but I think that, the, again, he's He continues to just churn out really interesting books that matter for the world and society. And um, to be able to be a young graduate student and then a continued
1: kind of colleague of his has been a real privilege for me. Sure. Yeah. Speaking of books, you've written two of your own on Irish and European European politics, how parties win and one party uh, dominance. Talk a little bit about kind of what influenced your passion for Irish politics and how you became to become an author of two books.
2: Um, I kind of fell into it i I studied in London as an undergrad, and I watched Margaret Thatcher resign on live television and I was fascinated by that but i um and I wrote my senior thesis on Margaret Thatcher and then I went back to London School of Economics after graduating from college and then I realized very quickly that I was kind of sick of british politics and uh and fell in love with Italian politics, but I didn't speak Italian and when it came time for my thesis and I was so interested like how can you have a government that collapses every you know six months and we call it a stable democracy um, but I was really afraid of the whole language barrier and then I was like wait a second the Irish speak English and I'm an Irishman so I kind of backed into it so I wrote my Irish my thesis for London School of Economics back in 1993 I know I'm dating myself before you were all born um, on Irish politics and then I kind of fell in love with it because it brought me to Ireland and I started to realize my family I'm fourth and fifth generation I know oh, and your parents are from Ireland um, my relatives go so far back that I don't—I never knew any of them because they all immigrated and no one was still left there. But I ended up going back again, and I, I was happened to be going back to Ireland at a time when when everything was changing. So Ireland was poor, and then it became wealthy. There was violence, then it became peaceful. It was a place of you know people emigrated, and now you had immigrants. You had the church once dominant that had collapsed, and so like all these really interesting social phenomena and political phenomena and economic phenomena were happening all at once. And I just happened to be kind of living through those and kind of decided to write about them. And so I've been able to write one book on my own, one edited volume, and then I just finished the third one on Irish kind of politics of education reform, um, which is a lot of fun too. And, and Owen knows from my Irish politics class, Ireland is so damn small. It's literally the geographic size of the state of Indiana, and it's only four and a half million people. So like all of a sudden, before you know it, like if you spend any time there, you just it's like 1.5 degrees of separation. I mean, I was literally a grad student and met a top civil servant my second day there. And he's literally, he had me lined up to meet like 10 government ministers the next day. And I'm like, wait a second, I have no idea what I would ask them. Um, But they're very open to talking and sharing life. And so kind of fell in love with it and have pursued it. And it's been a great passion of mine.
0: I also didn't know that you finished a third book. That's incredible. So kind of touching upon your scholarly work, in addition to that, we know that you co-founded Notre Dame's Alliance for Catholic Education, short into ACE, Teacher Training Program in 1993, um, and you also helped lead the program for several years. A little bit of background here, but ACE has grown to train more than 2,000 teachers and administrators for Catholic schools in the U.S., Ireland, Chile, and Haiti, which is phenomenal and something I bet most of the listeners don't know much about. Uh, maybe can you touch upon that a little bit and maybe some of the difficulties in founding a teacher training program in general or specifically for a catholic program yeah
2: um i was very fortunate to be at notre dame uh, at a time when there were a number of people who were um you know teach for america was started a year or two before we started our program there was a program in dc there were a lot of like other programs like the you know jesuit volunteer corps and things like that but there wasn't a lot in education and all of a sudden Teach for America. I think in some ways, Wendy Kopp, who wrote that as her senior thesis at Princeton, if it's, if you can believe that or not, he, uh, not to put pressure on you as you're thinking about what you're going to write about. Um, our family always likes to joke about now when you hear someone do something really good, the, the line is always, "What are our dopes doing?" Um, but when you hear stories like that, you're like, "Oh, it's intimidating." But but anyway, we learned a lot from programs like Teach for America that were all these young people wanted to go and use their gifts to serve and to teach, and but they were doing it in the public schools and. We had a bunch of people parents superintendents of schools, school leaders who were basically saying hey we can't get committed young catholics in our schools primarily in the south because where we started the program um and so all of a sudden it was one of those classic there was a huge need as you know of demand and there was a supply of people who were looking to use their gifts in some ways so anyway there was a group of people at the time who um basically just gave it a chance <laughs> and we kind of making it up as we went along we had no idea what we were doing but thankfully That's proof that the Holy Spirit knows what she's doing because um, kind of it somehow worked and lots of pretty amazing faithful people have committed to it. And most people, I think, I guess the one stat, I can go on and on if you have other questions about it, but one of the interesting things about it is that I think originally it was idea of like, you know what, people do it for two years and then they go on and whatever, going to law school or med school or go into the business world or whatever. And one of the things that's been interesting over the now almost 30 years is that almost two thirds are staying in education. I think that they're staying they're staying in education because they realize, wait a second, like you can really have an impact on the lives of the next generation, even if it's just one kid or two kids or a school, whatever. Um, and so lots of women and men are finding their vocation to be uh, teachers. And then over time, what's happened is the more they're in schools, they're like, wait a second, I wanna be a principal or I wanna start an English as a new language program or I wanna whatever. And all of a sudden it's gonna blossom out all these different things. And I think that one of the things that's interesting is that Notre Dame at the time did not have a school of education. And oftentimes that gave us a flexibility that otherwise um, doesn't exist for places like Boston College has an amazing school of education. It's one of the best. Um, and the Lynch School of Education is great. And they actually have a program and their graduates go on and do a lot of things in public schools, private schools, Catholic schools. They do have a program called the Urban City teaching Corps, which also um, trains and forms people to be in inner city Catholic schools in the Boston area, which is like ACE, but ACE is a little bit more spread out nationally, where you do the two years, two summers, do your kind of teaching for two years, live in community, and then you know, kind of go on from there. But anyway, it's been a, it was a privilege to be a part of it at the beginning, and they're doing amazing work. There have been a ton of BC grads who have been part of ACE. I think there are several who are in ACE right now. One of the grads, Liz Fennell, works over in the Roach Center for Catholic Education. She was a BC undergrad and works there. And, and Melody Wittenbach, who's the current director of the Roach Center, um, and uh, some other colleagues as well, were at Notre Dame and ACE. And so there's kind of this symbiotic relationship between the things that are going on at Notre Dame, things that are going on at uh, at Boston College, because at the end of the day, it's trying to invite
1: young people to discover their vocations, and education is a great way to do it. Professor, I don't know if you know this, but as a, a guest on Eagle Eye, you join a series of other guests who are also marathon runners. Um, and obviously that takes a lot of time and focus. So I'm curious if you've trained while you've been a professor, have been busy and, and what that keeping that balance and that process has been like.
2: Uh, it's funny. I've done, I've been fortunate if I did, I, I was able to do, I've done eight marathons in my life. My first one, I was Younger, younger, and healthy, and uh, I actually had a lot of fun, and I ran it in an okay way. All the other ones have been injured, so I just kind of hobble along. I'm not the kind of the runner's build uh, that you would think of, and I'm pretty damn slow. And even when I say to people I've done Boston, they're like, "You did? How you How did you qualify for Boston?" I'm like, "Oh my god, I did charity. Are you kidding me?" <laughs> um, but one of the things that's been great is I was able to, um, in all of the marathons that I've done, I was able to raise money for. Uh, most of the time it was ran for, for Catholic schools. Actually, the last one I did was in 2018. That was the year of the, the terrible rain. Um, and it was like 40 degrees and 30 mile an hour winds. And I actually got injured such that I pulled my calf, but I walked. And one of the funny story, I had to walk for like the last nine miles. I tried hopping, but realized I couldn't probably hop on one foot for nine miles. So I'm walking along and I happened to be behind this guy so even I was so looking forward to coming to buy BC because the BC students are the best. Even my first time I ran the marathon, I had a Notre Dame hat on and they even cheered for me. There was one person who wasn't very happy that I was wearing Notre Dame hat, but they, they got over it, I hope. Um, but the second time I was going so slow that there was literally no one out left. I mean, there was no one out cheering anymore because I was so slow. Anyway, I was behind this guy who was running at bare feet and he's had a shirt a thing on the back of his shirt. That says, i I'm running marathons for those who don't have shoes. He was raising money, you know? And so I, I'm like hobbling along and behind him and I was getting, I'm loud as you can tell and know from my class. And so I'm like, so bored that I'm walking, that I'm getting other people in the crowd like cheering for this guy. And I'm like, look at this guy, he's got no shoes on. And they're all like cheering for him. And then they look at me and they're like, and you're behind him. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, I'm still going to finish. It's just going to be very slow. <laughs> yeah. So that's a long-winded answer to saying I'm not training right now because uh, after that marathon, I realized I tore a tendon, and I had surgery, and I haven't been able to run since. So, um, but I think it's a great thing. I love that the BC students get to be part of one of the coolest marathons in the world, and really uh, make it happen for people.
0: Eight marathons? Wow, that's unbelievable. I remember when I first told some of our fellow Heights board members um, that we were bringing you on, and they were, I think, former students of yours. When I mentioned that, yeah, like he's even done marathons. Like, can you believe it? They didn't know that about you, so they were really <laughs> excited to hear this. But yes, segue into some of our ending questions that are more lighthearted. In your opinion, what is the best thing about being a political scientist?
2: Well, I mean, the world is totally crazy right now, right? I mean, with the rise of populism and everything with COVID and the rise of um, you know the polarization in our own country, the questioning the role of kind of religion, How do we get people involved in politics? Obviously last year, the 2020 election was so interesting. Um, Anyway, it's a privilege to be able to wrestle with students over like big issues and try to think like, how can we study these in deeply analytical ways, come up with, maybe build on previous theories and maybe come up with our own new ones. And um, so anyway, I have a blast teaching political science because even though there are bad things happening in the world and you hate for that to happen, as a political scientist, it gives you a lot of material to try to fight and wrestle to figure out, well, what can we do differently to overcome some, some of these pretty significant challenges?
1: Sure. Okay, so what's the most memorable class you've ever taken? And then what is the your favorite course you've ever taught as a professor?
2: Oh my gosh, the most memorable class. Well, I, th- I mentioned this, we were talking about teachers. My Probably my most memorable teacher was my sixth grade teacher. <laughs> I, she, I grew up in rural Minnesota and she was a Green Bay Packers fan and she like put Packers paraphernalia all over the room. And I'm like, what are you kidding me? So, like, all these young sixth graders were totally ticked off at Mrs. Brule, who was our teacher. But I realized it was a great tactic to, uh, uh, to kind of wrestle the students and get them, get us all fired up. And so, so I, I obviously don't put Notre Dame cl- things up in my classroom, but I do remember last year when Notre Dame played. Boston College and football, I gave my students an opportunity to guess the right score and winner, and they get a free quiz. So it was interesting because like they had the opportunity to like, if you want the points, then you gotta like pick who you think is gonna win, you know. So I'm sorry, but last year at least, uh Notre Dame won and and several students picked the right score and they got bonus points. So um, but anyway, I digress. So but but you're probably looking for a more of a college level class. Um I think I had um I don't know. I've had so many of my political science classes, um, probably my con, I had a con law class, my uh, constitutional law class um, when I was a sophomore, that was really intriguing to me, even though I know as one of my colleagues, Michael Hartney, reminded me last night that most lawyers don't do anything near what constitutional law teaches is about, but at least it gets us curious about the role of law and the way we live our life. And then I also had a couple of professors who taught comparative politics I just thought it was really, I was curious about the questions they raised. Um, so those are the best for me. In terms of my own, like, every class I've taught is my favorite. I just love it. And I continue to learn a lot from students like you. And, and um, I feel like uh, I'm always kind of, I, get, I always get a little nervous before class because I want to do well. And I also want to be open to what I'm going to learn from, from my students. And so I'm, I feel grateful for that.
0: I'm surprised to hear that you're nervous before class because you're always so like energetic and you just can always know what we're talking about, even like if we ask the most random questions. So that's so great to hear. If you could require your students to read one thing before they graduate, what would it be and why, whether it be an article or a book, anything? Wow.
2: Well, I'd say two things. One, one would be, I think everyone should read *The Lord of the Rings. Way too long, though, to require people to read Uh, Lord of the Rings by Tolkien is my favorite book. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful story about mission and friendship and how little people change the world. Um, But I think in terms of a short thing, I would have people read David Foster Wallace's graduation speech. I think it was at Denison. And it's called, it was made into a little book and it was called, he unfortunately passed away, but um, it's, I think it's called, What is Water? And it's his gradu, most graduation speeches, as I think we all know are abysmally boring and filled with platitudes. And I, I would hate to give a graduation speech, what do you say? But he actually, he started off and said, rather than giving big advice about like how we're gonna change the world. He said, the most important thing is how we do the little things. And so his, his his opening image is these two little fish are swimming along and they come by an older fish. And the older fish looks at the younger fish and says, how's the water, lads? And the two little fish keep going along and they look at each other like, what's water? Like they didn't even realize that their whole life was in water. And his whole point was like, when you're in the grocery store and you're in line, you know, at the trying to get your lunch or your whatever, and you're ticked off because someone's in your way, think about what is it about the person behind the counter who's serving you? What are they going through? Or what is the person who cuts you off in traffic? Maybe they're having to get home to their sick mom or whatever. But it's basically like, how do we think about the little things? And if we're more attentive and other centered in the little things, our lives will become fulfilling. And so I would recommend that for everyone to read.
0: Sure. Yeah, that sounds actually like really interesting. I think you've mentioned it in one of our classes before. But yes, those are all the questions that we have. So thank you again so much for joining us.
1: Uh, Thanks so much, Professor. Well, that was actually really interesting. We hadn't, I hadn't heard some of those things from class. So that's, that's yeah. really cool. That oh, was good. Was
2: that because you were sleeping or you just didn't show up that day <laughs> or <laughs> I what? I talked about
1: all
0: Thank you again to Professor McGraw for joining us. We hope everyone enjoyed our interview. And also make sure to keep up with our social media at Heights on Instagram and Twitter and The Heights on Facebook. Don't forget to give us suggestions on who you want to hear and what you want to hear about. Thank you everyone for listening and be sure to check back here in a week for another episode of Eagle Eye.